to the New Testament. The New Testament, uh, we are at Revelation chapter 11. <coughs> Revelation 11. We're at the, the end of Revelation 11, starting from verse 14 through the end of the chapter. This also is God's word. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us great promises in your word. Father, despite the fact that many curse uh, the name of Christ, that many use his name flippantly and in dishonor. Father, we acknowledge that your name is a strong tower to which we may run to and be safe. Father, we look forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we acknowledge that the, the hatred, the disregard, the anger, the persecution... Though we face, we seem to face so little of it, Father, we acknowledge when they do come, those will be small things in comparison to having fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we pray that we would learn to count the cost and that each and every time may your people be those who treasure you above everything else. Father, we look forward to the day when Jesus will reign eternally, that all his enemies will be defeated, that our sin will be removed. Father, we thank you that you provide us the very best, that these promises are indeed great. Father, we thank you that you are the one who does that mighty work. And Father, we pray that we would give thanks to you even now as we await it. And we pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward even today, that sinners would trust in you, that they would that we would turn from our sins and embrace Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> there have been many, many attempts to create heaven on earth. And if you look through human history, any attempt to create heaven on earth was a horrible, corrupt, 
bloodbath. Despots came. And this is how it works. That you tell people, hey, listen, I'm going to create heaven on earth. And they say, okay, go ahead and do it. And it's like, well, we don't have the power to do it. We need the power. It's okay, we'll give you the power. And, and that is when uh, you, you find out about what they believe righteousness, good and evil, to be. And the, the evil are usually the people who don't like them or don't submit to them. Uh, and usually what you have is just a repeat of all the evil of the past, except you have a different group. It's the nature of man, it's the nature and the sinful nature of man to look for messiahs, to look for saviors, to look for gods in all the wrong places. To think that somehow, hey, there's another group in power. Now we will be treated well. Now we will have heaven on earth. This is a sinful, uh, the, the desire of a sin nature. And it's a desire because what they're, what they're saying is we refuse to have Jesus, who is the rightful ruler of heaven and earth. We refuse to bow the knee to him, but we will bow the knee to each and everything other than him. Because they're all created things and they're false things. Have you ever wondered, is this nature in you? Do, do you see that at times, that you seem to think, well, maybe the next guy, the next gal who gets into office, whether it be as a mayor or a governor or a president or a despot, whatever it might be, that we put such hopes in humans, when instead our hope should be in the Lord Jesus. Each and every time, what God has given us is an example of complete and utter failure. The reason why is because when you give power to people who are less than righteous and you give more and more power, the only effect or the only result will be danger. Are you able to see that in order to have the perfect ruler, you must have one who is sinless, one who is righteous. And it is when the righteous one rules that he has all the power, it is then that we can rejoice. And until then, we're left wanting. We're reminded this is not the true ruler. This is not the one in whom we will rejoice. And so we see even in this passage that the Lord Jesus tells us of his return. And up until that time, what he's spoken of is persecution. He's spoken of rejection. He's spoken of uh, the church uh, seeming to be in shambles, yet continuing forward. Perhaps I have not described it in this way. I'm still learning regarding this book of Revelation, that there are two halves. You have Revelation 1 to 11, uh, where We've come to the end of this first half. This Revelation 1 to 11 speaks about the physical conflict between believers and unbelievers. And then, Lord willing, next week, uh, we will look at the second, the start of the second half, Revelation 12 to 22, which is the spiritual conflict between Christ and Satan. So we see in this passage, Revelation 11, verses 14 and 19, that at the seventh trumpet, Christ's eternal reign will begin, marked by the rewarding of Christians and the destruction of unbelievers. At the seventh trumpet, Christ's eternal reign will begin, marked by the rewarding of Christians and the destruction of unbelievers. We'll look at this in four points. The first is the realization of Christ's reign. 
Second, the celebration of Christ's reign. Third, the result of Christ's reign. And fourth, the symbols of Christ's reign. So we have this first point, the realization of Christ's reign in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So as we look back at, at what's going on in this book of Revelation, uh, we have, I think it's seven, seven scenes, uh, parallel scenes. And the way that they're described is you have a, like a different picture, a different snapshot of what's going on. And it's, it's of the, the same period, uh, the same imagery of when Christ ascended to when Christ returns. It's, it's a snapshot of that same period. We saw that even from uh, the beginning regarding the letters to the churches. So during this period from Christ's coming to Christ, or sorry, uh, when Christ ascended to when Christ returns, you have the description. These letters uh, speak about the difficulties that go on within the church and how uh, apostasy is a real threat to Christ's church. We saw that uh, even in the situation uh, with Laodicea and, and how with the others, there were severe challenges in some, and it was two who were commended and without rebuke. And it, we also see throughout the scenes of Revelation that even in this chapter, Revelation 11, we have the picture about how the nations of the world will trample underfoot the church as she witnesses faithfully of her Lord. This was in 11 uh, verse 2. And then the beast from the abyss will arise and make war with them, with, with the church, and conquer them and kill them. This is verse 7. And those who dwell upon the earth will rejoice over the death of Christians, and in so doing, they will also exchange presents with one another. And it's because of the torment that they received from the testimony of Christians. This is verse 10. This idea is that when you and I go and live as godly examples of Jesus Christ, and we tell others about Jesus, who is the righteous one, he is the reigning king. He will return and he will call men uh, to an account that men are, ought to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that this is a torment to the consciences of the wicked. We also have in verse 12 of chapter 11 that the world will witness the resurrection of believers. And then they will hear the voice from heaven, which says, come up here. And they will witness the ascension of believers. And all of this witness is a reminder of their judgment. And then we come to today's passage, Revelation 11, verses uh, 14 to 19. So we have a, a description from the angels. So uh, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. Uh, we presume that this is the angelic voices. And they're saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Here, perhaps some of you are wondering, okay, but uh, isn't Jesus reigning right now? Isn't he sovereign? The answer is yes, he is. 
So what's changed? Well, often we speak about these things. And you notice in the, the scriptures that uh, God speaks of things that are not yet as already done. That they're as good as done in his view. For example, uh, we have Abraham and Sarah. I mean, maybe they're Abram and Sarai at the time, but he comes to them and he had already promised them years ago, it was 20 years ago, that, uh, that he would have descendants and they would be like the sand of the sea, uh, at the seashore. And he, he says to them, because he hadn't delivered it yet, he says, and this time next year, your wife will be with child. You'll have a son. And they laughed. But for God, it's as good as done. Now, when we think about how Jesus is reigning even now, he's sitting at God's right hand. And we acknowledge Ephesians 1.11, that God has predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Meaning that everything that happens, happens according to God's will. He, he willed it to happen. Yet we also acknowledge the work of Satan, Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Similarly, we see in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. <clears throat> we have Psalm 2 speaking about how the nations rage and the rulers plot together that let us uh, burst their bonds apart. Basically, the kings of the world are saying, we will... Though we hate one another, we will unite together to oppose the Lord Jesus. This is exactly what we saw when uh, Pilate and Herod uh, were opposing Christ, that though they were enemies, they became friends. When we think about this in terms of our, our understanding of God and his word and the, the reign of Christ, we think about how God still controls secondary causes, including the actions of kings and the final outcomes. Indeed, uh, he controls the means as well as the ends. So everything is under his sovereign control. You think about even the desires and the hearts of kings. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So the question remains, uh, you haven't described it. I haven't hit the nail on the head with the hammer. How will things be different? Well, the angels in heaven are saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The description there is that God, he will put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. That's the very description that we have. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. This is Hebrews 2.8. So there's acknowledgement that all things are not yet subjected to the feet of Christ, but they will be. Right now, there is the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom of this world, and they're not the same. Yeah, you can think about it in terms of like a, a Venn diagram. Uh, and when Jesus returns then, the circle of uh, the kingdom of this world and the circle of the kingdom of Christ will have perfect coincidence. They will coincide. I, I hope that description makes sense. That Christ's reign will also be forever and ever. 
The reason being is because he rules mediately. He rules mediately through, uh, through the rulers of this world. That though they are under Satan, Satan is under God. He's under God's control. And that when Jesus returns, he will throw them into the lake of fire, that they will be judged. And that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. We see that in Daniel 7.14 that we read earlier. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Not as if any kingdom is perfect, but even the ones that are good, even the ones that are outwardly righteous, they're attempting to do the right thing, uh, that oftentimes uh, they are very short-lived. But the reign of our Lord Jesus will be forever and ever. Do you look forward to the realization of Christ's reign? We have to understand that it is not entirely here yet. We witness it in our own lives, even as we submit to him in his word, that you and I should be the first to confess that our own submission to him is so far from perfect. So the first point, the realization of Christ's reign. We have the second point, the celebration of Christ's reign, in verses 16 and 17. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So in verse 15, there were the voices from heaven, the loud voices, these angelic voices. And in 16 and 17, we have the 24 elders. We spoke earlier about how this was 24 is the sum of 12 and 12, the 12 heads of the tribe of Israel and the 12 apostles. And they are representative of the church throughout time. That uh, when the 24 elders worship, it resembles or it symbolizes the entire church giving thanks. We see what uh, the 24 elders did. They're sitting on their thrones before God, but they fell on their faces. This is a prostration. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of giving honor. And this is the honor that is, that is due our God. This is the honor that is due uh, the Lamb who was slain. And in this humility, there is worship. That, that we should bow before God, that we should fall on our faces, that we should give worship to God. And you think about what worship is, it's acknowledging, it's an acknowledgement that someone is so far greater than you and me. It's acknowledgement, he is God, we are not, and we are subject to him. He is so far greater than us, he is holy, and we are not, we are sinners. The response to this is also that of gratitude. So we respond first in humility. We, we see the difference between the Almighty God and ourselves. There's also the response of gratitude and praise. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. The, the nature of man is that we do not like to submit to others. 
We see that so clearly in the, in the case of, of Israel, God's people, that uh, you know, I'm sure God could say to the wicked rulers who ruled over his people, those he sent to judge his people in their disobedience, hey, listen, like he could tell Pilate, hey, listen, Pilate, or hey, Herod, you know what? These are my people, and I'm telling you, they're wicked. They're unsubmissive. They're not going to submit to you. You're going to have to rule them with an iron fist. And isn't this the case? It's not just the people of Israel, God's people of the past. It's sinful humanity. Is that the requirement to bow the knee to another, to submit to the, uh, the rule of another, that this is something that's inherently difficult out of man's pride, out of man's selfishness, to submit to another. Yet, God is the one who changes the heart. And we acknowledge what Jesus, the lamb who was slain, has done. That he who was slain, was slain not because of anything he did wrong, he was slain because he willingly submitted himself to the Father. That he died at the hands of wicked, sinful men. Not because he was powerless, but because he was powerful. He is meek, meaning meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control, strength in reserve. And we see that Jesus submitted himself so that he died on the cross. He died in the place of sinners. He died in your place, in my place. We think about the praise that we give to God. We acknowledge that God is almighty. And this is the difficulty regarding power. Power in, in the visible earthly realm is that we fear power because it is united with those who are less than righteous. And we would not give thanks. We would, we would be fearful if an earthly ruler had greater and greater power. This is why even in, our, even in earthly rule, earthly governments, there's these systems of checks and balances. And they're there because of what? Because of total depravity. That it shouldn't be the case that power rests only with one person. You think about uh, within the church, that if, if ever power rested only with one person, and if we believe in total depravity, that's, that's going to be a nightmare. How much more so when you have those who control the power and have the power of the sword. But with Jesus, we acknowledge that he is holy. He is entirely righteous. And because of that, we give thanks that he is almighty. He is powerful because there's nothing to fear. We also have nothing to fear because Jesus, the lamb who was slain, willingly laid down his life for us so that we are not consumed by his wrath. We also see that there is this time that passes for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And we look forward to this eternal reign of our Lord Jesus. We look forward to when he will return. And each and every ruler that we have in whatever realm, however good they are, they all fall short. And the reminders, this is less than perfection. This is less than the Jesus who will be true satisfaction for you and for me. So this is the celebration of Christ's reign. The third point is the result of Christ's reign. In verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
<clears throat> so in the various scenes that we had in Revelation, the chapters before, uh, you have the scenes about great torture for those uh, who were dwelling upon the earth. This is the term used to describe unbelievers. That despite the torture that they received, the torture that felt like the, the sting of scorpions, uh, that there were these uh, locusts that came. They were, they were actually demons. Uh, this was in chapter 9. And then there's the taking of a third of the population of the world. And still, men are saying, no, we refuse to repent of our idolatry, of our immoralities. No, we're not going to give it up. And each time, each time there is the uh, sign of judgment, the foretelling of judgment, this is opportunity. This is God's mercy to sinners that you and I would repent and turn from our sins and believe upon Jesus Christ. So here, when we think about this, the response of the, of the people of the world, we're told that the nations raged. This, this is an allusion to uh, Psalm 2, the start of Psalm 2, why did the nations range, uh, rage and the people's plot in vain, meaning that they're futile. Their attempts are futile to resist God, that God sits in heaven and he laughs at them. It is as if, it is as if people will ever get out of God's judgment simply because we refuse it. Imagine going to a judge, an earthly judge, and saying, I do not acknowledge your authority in my life. What do you think that judge would say to you? I think he would probably be, or he or she would probably be quite upset and say, listen, I do not need your acknowledgement of my authority for me to carry out whatever judgment I have. And so also would be the case with God, that God doesn't need our permission to judge us. We think about God's rightful reign, his rightful rule. That God as creator is the rightful owner and judge of each and every man, woman, and child. He created us. That he is the rightful judge and owner. For the Christian, not only is he your creator, he's also your redeemer. He's your savior. Meaning that he's doubly so one who rightfully reigns in your life and mine. This is why we have a, a greater duty for obedience that not only did he create us, and as our creator, he, he, can, he can tell us what we have to do, but he's also the one who has redeemed us by the blood of his son, Jesus. He's purchased us by the blood of his son, and we are doubly duty-bound to him to obey his word, to submit to his reign. What ends up happening, even as the nations rage, we're told, but your wrath came. God's wrath came. It's not as if God looked at the people who raged and says, oh, they seem very upset. I cannot judge them. No, he, he follows through. And the time for the dead to be judged. And we see what happens here. When we think about uh, the rewarding of the servants, so judgment of the dead consists of two things. It consists of well, there is a, a final declaration for Christians uh, that they are righteous in Jesus Christ and that they will be received. And then there will be 
a, a giving of rewards for God's people. And there will be the, the trial of unbelievers and then their destruction. So it consists of two parts, the, the judging of the dead. So then we think about the, the judgment of the, of the righteous. It's not, as anyone, it's not as if anyone is inherently righteous of themselves. Anyone who is righteous is righteous in Christ. And there was a time when you became a believer and you were justified. You passed from death to life, meaning that that justification has already passed. Uh, in judgment, there's only the, simply the declaration, the final statement of that. And this is when you and I look forward to eternal rewards. Notice that this mention of rewards and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, that you notice he doesn't use the word wages. There's a reason why. That there's a difference between reward and wages. You think about how wages are used. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice how Paul uses their wages. The wages of sin is death. The payment, uh, the payment for sin is death. But he says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a gift of grace that sinners receive eternal life. So also in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So wages are what people receive because of work. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, meaning it's not grace, but it's what is due. There's a contract. You, you work this many hours doing this kind of job. This is what you're paid. But we're told that uh, that's not how Abraham was made righteous. He was declared righteous. He was declared righteous by faith apart from works. So this reward then is a good or a blessing given for that which is already required of us. That being service or obedience. Rewards, then, is what God gives at the last judgment to those who have already been forgiven, who've already been justified. And it's, and it's given. Uh, here, we ought to understand that these, these rewards, then, are, are blessings that God gives. That uh, you think about a reward, if, you, if there's a reward and as someone finds um, a child who's lost, and there's a reward. Well, obviously, in any situation, if a child is lost, we all have a duty to look for. I mean, to some degree, we have some duty to help look for this child and return it to his parents or her parents. And you can understand that a reward is not, hey, you've done something right, you've earned it, right? It's, this is what we ought to do. A reward is something on top of that. So also, the blessing that God gives to encourage uh, good obedience in us. <clears throat> Let me ask you, Christian, when and where are you seeking your rewards? Are you seeking them here in this life, from this world? Well, here, this is a reminder to us that our rewards come not from this world, and they come not now. 
That's a reminder to us that our, wor- our rewards must be from God. And they come in eternity. They come in heaven. Jesus gives this warning that if we do our righteous deeds to be seen by men and to be praised by them, he warns and says, you have received your reward in full. Meaning that you do it for the praise of men, you might get the praise of men, and that's all you're going to get. Instead, we ought to do uh, what he requires of us, that we do it without others seeing it, without the desire to be noticed. And it's a reminder to us that our words will come. They'll come from the Lord, and they'll come eternally. We also have the description of the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. It's the very last part of verse 18. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, as, as bad as uh, those who pollute the environment are, that this is not referring to those who uh, are punished because they're polluters or, or those who care nothing for the environment. Rather, it's describing those who destroy people, who destroy people. And oftentimes this comes up. Uh, you think about how, oh, well, if you look at this cow, it weighs uh, 1,500 or 2,000 pounds. That's uh, a lot of meat. That's a lot of weight compared to a human who might only weigh 150 or 200 pounds or whatever it might be. So that's, that's maybe a 10x difference of size or weight. And, and outside of God's revelation, there might be some uh, view of utility. Well, hey, this, this cow can be used to do work. This cow can be used for, for food. And a human, well, not so much in some ways. Well, we look at why is a human valuable, more valuable than a cow, a pig, or a horse? The reason is that a human is created in the image of God. When, when a human's life is taken... We don't need to look at the other external circumstances. How much were they worth? What color was their skin? Uh, what ethnic group did they come from? None of those things matter. The value of a human is that they're created in the image of God. And that's immaterial regarding any of those other things. Here we ought to understand that all sinners who have not been covered by the blood of Christ, every single one of them will be judged and condemned. They are included in that group of, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Here we think about what God does. Does anyone get free? Does anyone escape the, judge, the final judgment? The answer is no. No one does. All Christians will finally be justified and that you will receive your rewards And the wicked, those who refuse to submit and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they will be judged. Every sin accounted for and paid for in full for eternity. So that's the third point, the result of Christ's reign. We have four of the symbols of Christ's reign in verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So then God's temple in heaven was opened. You see that in the Old Testament, the temple was a closed place. But there are certain parts that women could not go. There are certain parts 
those of us Gentiles could not go. And then there was the Holy of Holies that the priest, the high priest, went in there once per year, and he was the only one. It was certainly a closed thing. The temple was a closed place. At Christ's death, the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom, Matthew 27, 51. And that symbolized uh, the separation of God and man and uh, the, the need for a mediator uh, being satisfied that Jesus Christ, who is the mediator, satisfied that. It's a reminder that the temple in heaven being opened is that you who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, that you have access to God. And as you look forward to the day when your sin, your sin nature will be completely removed, that the temple will fully be open. And also, the description of the ark was seen within his temple. That the ark of the covenant was a symbol of God's presence. You think about the mercy seat on top of it. Exodus 25, verse 21 and 22. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This ark of the covenant and being able to see it symbolize the fellowship and the communion with God without limit or restriction. This is what you and I have to look forward to. These are symbols of God and of Christ's reign and our fellowship with him, our enjoyment of him. There's also the descriptions. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. That this peals of thunder, the earthquakes, that those in the Old Testament and also uh, in scenes of Revelation already mentioned that these earthquakes and, and the peals of thunder, those are all the, the precursors of God's judgment. We also see the, the heavy hail. And Revelation 16.21 mentions that the hail, the hailstones will weigh one talent or according to uh, our common usage, uh, one talent, is it 75 pounds or 100 pounds each? We talked about it the other day about how um, you, know, you, you insure your car. Uh, you have comprehensive coverage, insurance. And then oftentimes you see these Minnesotans when there's a hailstorm, instead of moving their car into the garage to keep it from damage, they drive their cars out of their garage so it gets damaged and then they get, they get their car paid for. Right? This is, this is the, the brokenness right, of the way life is here. But you think about these little hailstones causing the damage on the roof. And just try to imagine. Imagine a five-pound hailstone, however big that may you know, maybe like a grapefruit size or, or bigger. Imagine that that fell from the sky and hit you, you know, kind of right on the smack on your head, or maybe on your shoulder. Imagine what a five-pound hailstone would do. I don't think you're gonna get up from that so easily. And then you think about a 75 or a hundred-pound hailstone. No one's getting up from that. And we see that. The peals of thunder and, and the lightnings and the rumblings and the earthquakes. These are all signs of God's judgment. And each time God speaks of them, each time we witness them, even in real life, these are all reminders 
there will come a day when God will send his son back and he will call sinners to an account. And each time we hear of this, it's a reminder that we have a duty to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. If we think about how this word, this passage, is of good use to you and to me, even as we think through it, what is your heart's response? How do you respond to the reign of Christ, his power and authority over your life? First, do you acknowledge it? Do you acknowledge that Christ has a rightful claim of authority in your life? The witness of the 24 elders, these are the, the, uh, those who had thrones in heaven, that they gave thanks for Christ's reign. There was delight in God's reign over their lives. Is this true for you? Do you delight in God's reign over your life? This is a delight in his word. That when you and I ask the question, why do we have to do it this way? The world says we should do it this way. Well, why are we following the ways of the dinosaurs? This is, this is what people have said to me, to my face. You're so old-fashioned, you live like a dinosaur. We don't do those things anymore. We don't do those. We don't follow those ways anymore. However many ways people can put it, are you going to follow and submit to the Lord Jesus? Are you going to bow your knee to him when he is unpopular? The call to submit to and honor and worship the King of Kings that it is easy when you think about what he has done on behalf of sinners. The tendency for sinners is to say, hey, listen, I'm not going to submit to someone unless I trust them. Well, he's done that. He's earned that. He's willingly laid down his life so that you and I who are sinners may have new life, that we may be washed clean of our sins. And then you ask again, well, why should I submit to him? Well, I've given you the best and the greatest reason because your life has been purchased by his blood. The nations raged, meaning that they would rather have the rocks and the mountains fall on them than to face and to submit to the lamb who was slain. Perhaps some people in their lives, they hold grudges easily against men, and they hold grudges easily against God. Is there something that's holding you back? Is there a grudge that you hold against God? What are you holding against the righteous king, the Lord Jesus himself? And ask yourself, is that worth your eternity of judgment? Meaning, what, what do you need to forgive God of that you might submit and worship him? You see, even that question sounds horrifically bad, mm -hmm. as if you need to forgive God of something. All, all of his actions are righteous and good and, ju and just. That means there's something wrong with your heart or mind if you're holding a grudge against God. We, we need to give that up. We need to trust in God, turn from our sins, and honor him. This is a hopeful reminder of better to come. We've all experienced it. We've all experienced good managers uh, good directors, and we've experienced bad ones. We've seen that there were servant leaders that God has placed in our lives, whether or not they were believers or not, and it's, it's possible to have that. 
And, we, and, we, and for those, we should have rejoiced and given thanks that, that it was good to serve under their rule. But we've also experienced the bad ones. And even for those who were exceedingly good, we acknowledge that they were far from perfect. And each and every single one of those are reminders that we must long for the righteous and eternal reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready to stand before God in the final judgment? And on what basis will you stand? Will it be on your own merits or rather lack thereof? All who stand before God without Christ as mediator, as our representative, we will be condemned, each and every one of us. Trust in God and his free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son. He commands you to repent and to believe in Jesus. Believe that his righteousness is sufficient for you, that his perfect sacrifice is enough to pay for your sins, and that you and I should be those who delight when this righteous King of Kings returns, and that we would give thanks, that we would delight in his righteous rule. And we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father.